can't speak today. I'm quite tired, I will admit. (laughs) Hello and welcome to As It Comes, life from a musician's point of view. I'm Davina, I'm a freelance cellist based in London, and I finally feel like my summer has begun. It's always the gamble of the freelancer whether work is going to come in over the summer. The number of times I've chatted to colleagues about what they've been up to, to be met with a shrug, and, oh well, it's August, isn't it? Teaching has dried up, the concert seasons are on hiatus, and you think, how am I going to earn money? It's daunting, especially in your first few years of freelancing, looking ahead in your diary and seeing a vast array of blank pages, thinking, oh my goodness, I'm never going to work again, or I'm going to be super poor in September. Not to mention that this seems to be timed just when self-employed people here in the UK have to pay half their tax bill. (sighs) Not bitter about that at all. Not at all. I'm noticing now that I've been doing this for a few years that it's different sorts of work that comes in. Summertime, in the UK anyway, means festivals, weddings, functions, tours, operas, which are especially huge here. While the stable work you do during the year is on a break, now is the time for spontaneous and fun work to shine. In the last few weeks, I've been on tour with an 80s pop legend, as well as played approximately 5 billion notes in a chamber version of Wagner's Das Rheingold, and got to hang out with some amazing friends and colleagues along the way. But now, it's time for me to have some time to myself, recharge the batteries somewhat, and remember what it's like to do nothing for once. Remember nothing? I think I vaguely do. The other night, my husband Mark had to remind me that it's totally okay to take an evening off, drink beer, and watch Star Wars. And I need reminding to do that, otherwise I will find something to stress about. I think I've trained myself to keep afloat always, say yes as much as possible. But while that's important, it's also crucial to remember to think of dry spells as a positive thing. Because before I know it, September is going to roll around and I will be absolutely yearning for those days where I could switch my brain off to drink beer and watch Star Wars. I mean, we watched Return of the Jedi. It was it was a little bit cringe. Probably my least favourite of the original trilogy. Just because those CGI incidents are just terrible. And also, not as good as Empire. Anyway... Moving onwards with the pod. My guest for this episode is Uchenna Ngwe. She's an oboist, co-anglaist, co-anglais player, co-anglaire. She plays the co-anglais and is a PhD candidate at Trinity Laban Conservatoire of Music and Dance. She's founded an initiative called Plain Sight Sound to shed more light on black British, African and Caribbean classical musicians throughout history in conjunction with setting up the Decus Ensemble, which aims to uncover chamber works by these composers. I was lucky enough to play in Decus's concerts at the end of 2018, so you'll hear us refer to those throughout our conversation. Now, if you want to learn more about applying for Arts Council funding, this is the episode for you. As Uchenna very kindly shares her experiences of the crap fest that is making an application for funding. She did it and was successful. Yay! I have to say, it was so enlightening talking to a wind player. I love the little nerdy insights on what makes instruments so unique. The little quirks we have to deal with when we play. So you'll hear I learned a lot about oboe playing in conversation with Uchenna. 
I hope you find it interesting too. A little mention before we get stuck in. You'll hear us talking about Winifred Atwell, a fascinating figure that I'd never heard of before. Yet in the chat, it didn't occur to me to clarify who she actually was for listeners. So Winifred Atwell was a Trinidadian pianist. She was classically trained at the Royal Academy of Music, but popularised boogie-woogie and ragtime piano playing throughout the mid-20th century. I'll put a link to Chen's blog post about her and check out her recordings because the energy from them is just so infectious. I've written a segment about Atwell for Radio 3 and that's going to be coming out soon on Time Travellers as well. Also, trigger alert, there is some brief discussion around the word moist. I met up with Chen shortly after stepping off a train from Manchester that morning and we start our conversation the way many Londoners initiate chat by talking about the tube. Have a listen to my chat with Uchenna. I think if we'd done it at my flat, we definitely would have felt like we were in a tube station. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you said you live above the Victoria Line, is that right? Yeah. So you feel the tube's just going. You feel it, you can hear it, yeah. Mm -hmm. 24-hour tube at the weekend. (gasps) Night tube, yeah. Night tube, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I haven't used as much as I thought I would, so I'm less happy about it because all I get is the noise. Yeah, I I don't really use the night tube. I think I did once, reluctantly, and I got stuck on the Jubilee line with a massive horde of Taylor Swift fans ah. <laughs> that were coming back from Wembley. It was basically rush hour, but with drunk people. Yeah, that's how I feel about the tube, and I find it worse than the night bus. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe because of the night bus, you actually get like a bit of fresh air. Occasionally. <laughs> fresh air interspersed with the vomiting. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Oh, goodness. Oh, our lives. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for meeting me today. Here we are in your workspace. At Trinity Laban Conservatoire of Music and Dance. That's the full name. You it heard is. it here first. <laughs> and it's very warm today. So I was just wondering, what has been filling your days during the summer? Oh, okay, during the summer, because I'm not doing any tours or festivals or anything this summer, gigs have kind of got a bit quieter, so I've got a bit more space during the week usually. And so I'm concentrating more on my research for my PhD. Oh, good. <laughs> it's a good thing to do, isn't it? When you run into one thing and then you, enter, you can do something. Exactly. Focus on something else. Yes. Yeah. And how productive have you been in this heat? In this heat? Well, on the hottest day, I was mostly lying under a fan on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> sort of attempting to read for about half an hour, but it was really too hot to do anything. Tried to do a little bit of practice. Couldn't <laughs> do that at all. Playing the oboe in that heat was not fun. How does the heat affect your oboe? I think my reeds actually quite like it. Really? Yeah. Because reeds are super temperamental, they aren't they? They are. So mine tend to like it when it's really humid or when it's really hot. So basically times when you don't really want to be playing anything. Yeah. Okay. And then the reeds like, hello. Yeah, exactly. So it sounds really good. <laughs> wow. My cello doesn't like humidity. It's, it just sounds like it's underwater. Oh. Mm. I, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to describe, but it just sounds a little bit woolly. I think. Right. It just lacks clarity. Yeah. Maybe that's the opposite of what you have with your reeds. Yeah, because I mean, they kind of need the moisture. Sure. I don't know why. I don't think it happened with my old instrument. Mm -hmm. So it might also be a lot to do with the instrument as well. Okay. Is that why you always see oboe players dipping reeds into those little film canisters? Filled with water. Filled with water? (laughs) 
not that many people use film anymore in their cameras. <laughs> no, they're really hard to come by, though. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, when the cane's wet, it's much easier for it to vibrate. Not everybody actually uses water. Some people will just put it in their mouth and use their spit. Mm-hmm. I don't, just because that's the way I learned, was just mm-hmm. dipping it in water. And it's, for me, it's much easier to do it that way because it just plays straight away. Yep. Yeah, I, well, you must sometimes come across performance situations where it's very dry and, yes. or you're, you have no saliva. Exactly. <laughs> so it's better just to rely on outside sources. Exactly. I, I mean, you will quite often see oboists just sitting there not playing with their reeds in their mouths mm. as well. Oh, I have seen that. Yeah. Yeah. And it looks like they've got a kind of cigarette thing in their exactly. mouth, but they're just yeah. lubricating. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, just keeping it moist. It? Oh. <laughs> I really, really dislike that word. You know what? I have this theory that it's just something to do with words that have the combination of O and I together are disgusting. Oh, okay. Okay, so you have moist. Yes, hoist. <laughs> Loin. <laughs> Loin, I really don't like that either. Mm. Groin. Groin. Not great. No. Poise. Poise. No, that's a brand of incontinence pads. <laughs> I think, well, in like somewhere in the world where I've lived, <laughs> maybe not here, coil, toilet, ointment. Ointment, mm. yeah. Moist ointment. Lovely. Anyway, so segue. <laughs> so, <laughs> you're an oboist and a koronglay yes. player, yes, as we have established, but you're also a PhD candidate here at Trinity College of Music. Can you tell us a little bit about your research and what inspired yeah. you to take this path into academia? When the idea of doing a PhD came up, first of all, I was kind of anti the idea of doing a PhD because I had this research that I wanted to do into black musicians in Britain, really. And for me, the idea of going back to college and studying was just not a thing I was interested in. <laughs> yeah, I get that. It's like you leave and then yeah. you're like, how did I do this? Yeah, I years? mean, it's such a long time ago now. <laughs> <laughs> Since I was finishing my postgrad, that, yeah, so it was just a non-starter for me initially. But the reason I wanted to study these musicians is because there seems to be this idea at the moment that the black classical musicians that are around are kind of an anomaly and that it's a very recent occurrence in music history where there weren't any before right yeah but obviously people had heard of people like George Bridgetower mm-hmm. um, who was friends with Beethoven who was really famous around then Samuel Coleridge Taylor and then the others you hear tend to be African-American so from the mid 20th century onwards mm. so there's a huge gap especially in what's happening over in Britain so I wanted to explore a bit more about that started doing a bit of my own reading asked a few people what the best way of researching this kind of subject is and PhD was one of those options back to college <laughs> you go exactly. <laughs> so you wanted to find out a little bit more about sort of the contemporaries of composers that are a little bit more well known in the sort of western canon exactly that have been there in history, but just haven't had so much exposure. Exactly, yeah. I mean, this idea of the canon is quite useful as a way to latch on to different genres and styles, but there's so much more happening outside of that. So I wanted to find out what else was going on Mm -hmm. and try and relate it to wider history that we all know about, because that's the other thing we don't do as well. If we're talking about someone like Haydn, what else was going on in Europe when he was writing his music? Yeah. Most of us don't know that, especially when we're learning in music colleges. We learn how to play the music. We don't really understand why mm. it was written or what context it was written in. Yeah, sometimes you just end up contextualising 
with other music. Exactly. You? You're like Haydn was before Mozart, which was <laughs> exactly. before Beethoven. But then what was going on as well? And I think that sort of dictates the, I guess, social climate exactly that they were yeah. writing this music definitely yes yeah. so social climate's a really good phrase actually that's something thanks <laughs> that's something that has been really interesting to me in a way that I didn't think it would be because I was so focused on the music mm. and finding more pieces to perform basically being an oboist we don't have as wide a repertoire as you would <laughs> slim pickings really oh, I don't, yeah what well, I mean actually now that you mention it I'm just trying to think of something a famous oboe Strauss but (laughs) that's all basically you could have had Mozart and Haydn as well Haydn really yeah Haydn what did he write for oboe a C major oboe concerto is it in C I don't know (laughs) asking totally the wrong person everyone always does Mozart basically isn't there a Mozart concerto which is a flute concerto as well is is that it's an oboe concerto it's an oboe concerto (laughs) but but the flute sometimes play it play it yes are you just saying that because you're an oboe player (laughs) I don't know. Um, I'm not the expert on double read repertoire. Anyway, yes. So okay, anyway. Oboe concerto. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, so flutes do sometimes play that. But yeah, there's, we've got a very limited repertoire. Actually, no, I wouldn't say it was limited, but in terms of canonic composers who've written for the oboe, it tends to be quite limited. Sure, yeah. So I think we get used to looking for repertoire that's a bit outside of the box. And I've always been really into chamber music. And so looking at chamber music with the oboe in unless I want to just play wind quintets I then get to look at different combinations of instruments so then it gets more interesting really yeah becomes a bit more rich doesn't it yeah what's your favorite piece that you've uncovered from your research oh that's a very good question my favorite piece is probably the five pieces for English horn and piano that I performed at the end of last year and you you were there I was there yeah (laughs) it was quite a contemporary piece wasn't it it was although I don't know if we can call it that contemporary anymore because it was written in the 60s oh yeah see (laughs) that in this kind of context we we always say anything that's 20th century is exactly is contemporary but it's the 21st century now it is (laughs) getting older and older by the minute (laughs) the 60s is still fairly Fairly modern. Yeah, so it's still fairly modern, relatively modern compared to all the other music that we tend to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was written by Akin Yuba, who was a Nigerian composer, and he was studying in Dublin at, when he wrote that piece, actually. Okay. He was a former Trinity College of Music student. Right. Oh, there you yes. go. <laughs> small world. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. How do you go about embarking on your research? So I know you've set up Plain Sight Sound. Yes. And can you tell us a little bit more about that and how you get new information about these composers and repertoire? Plain Sight Sound came about because I knew that there was a lot of information out there already. And so there didn't seem much point in me going through all the stages of finding exactly the same information that's already there. So Mm -hmm. people must already have it. And it's just quite hard as a musician to know where to look. So I wanted to create a single portal where any musicians, students, professionals, amateurs, whatever, who are interested in this kind of music could just go to one place and be signposted to where this this information or music already exists. So that's the idea of the project, still in very early stages. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, we're signposting, I say we, me. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> at the moment I'm um, signposting different composers and performers so little mini biographies if there's a Wikipedia page that already exists then I signpost that and it's more a case of just raising awareness at the moment yeah but eventually there'll be a database which will show people where they can actually access music if it's still in print or show them links to IMSLP where quite a few of the older composers have got some of their works up already. Brilliant. I have actually used Plain Sight Sound as a starting point for my own research. (laughs) (laughs) But I I just very happily stumbled across it when Mm. I was thinking about something to write for BBC Time Travellers. And you'd written a blog post about Winifred Atwill. Yes. And she was absolutely fascinating. I can't believe I'd never heard of her. And I think you even said... Yeah, I felt exactly the same. Yeah, for someone to be that famous and have three number one hits... I think the first black musician to have a number one hit in the UK, yeah, yeah. right? And then um, she even had her own TV show. Yep. Performances at London Palladium yeah. uh, all around the place. Special guest on loads of TV shows. Yeah. And, I mean, she didn't even pass away that long ago. No, it was really. 1983. Yeah, in Australia, of all places. <laughs> <laughs> in Australia, she passed away. But I'd never heard of her. No, I found that really surprising that someone could reach those heights of success and still, like you say, only a couple of decades later, no one's talking about her anymore. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing has been when I speak to people about the project and mention her name, they remember who she is. But when I talk about the project in general, they say they can't think of anybody who I might be talking about. Oh, well, that's all going to change now. <laughs> After everyone listens to this podcast. <laughs> So is that um, Plain Sight Sound that's directly tied in with your PhD research? Yes. So because I'm doing a creative practice PhD, so it's much more about performance and curation. It's not necessarily about creating biographies of people. Okay. So this, But I need to create the biographies in order to find out what people did as part of their careers mm-hmm. and where the music might be and what kind of music they wrote. So because I'm finding all of this information anyway, I might as well put it somewhere that other people can use it. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Is there going to be some sort of thesis that comes at the end of this? There will be, yes. (laughs) So, yeah, so creative practice involves a practical element, which will be um, an event performance extravaganza that I haven't worked out yet, but I've got a few years. (laughs) How many years have you got? So I've said between four and five years in total, and this is still early stages, so I've just finished year one. Oh, wow. Okay, so five years. How how many... How many years is that in, like, dog years? That's, like, 35 years. <laughs> it's only about the same in musician years. <laughs> okay, so this is year one. Okay. Yes. Very so year on. one has been a lot of finding information, working out where the sources are, going to different archives. Went up to Scotland twice in two weeks, which was exciting. Wow. Yeah. A lot of travel. Yeah, a lot of travel. But really, really useful. Mm. And... It's been really exciting talking to lots of different people who, lots of people have had this idea and had thoughts in the back of their mind that there must be more black composers and musicians around historically. But yeah, it's been interesting seeing how few people have actually gone out and done the work because it's not very easy. A lot of the information is hidden. Yeah, well, it's a testament to your dedication (laughs) that you're the one actually doing something about it now. So I'm sure like in future you'll make the job easier for someone else. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's brilliant. So you mentioned that there's the creative element to it. Yes. Uh, performance extravaganza, in mm-hmm. your words. Yes. Maybe I shouldn't have said that at this stage. <laughs> I reckon it's going to be an extravaganza. I mean, why not? <laughs> so that ties in with how you set up 
your ensemble. Yes. The Dacus Ensemble, in mm-hmm. conjunction with your research, yep. to uncover chamber music written by black African, Caribbean, and British composers. Yes. So can you tell us a little bit more about the ensemble? Yes. Okay. So the ensemble was set up before I even had the idea for this project. So oh, okay. the idea really initially was that, like I said before, as an oboist, if you want to do traditional ensembles you are kind of limited to wind quintets or sextets or dectets and then occasionally you can do things with string players but I wanted to see what else was out there I knew that lots of people have written from really complicated exciting chamber variations that hardly ever get played because it's really complicated to put those things together (laughs) in a concert and I knew that Samuel Coleridge Taylor had written on the net Yes. Yes. And so I decided, why don't I put together a concert that's based around this nonette that Coleridge Taylor had written? Mm -hmm. At this stage, I didn't really know much about him, actually. Like most people, I knew his name, knew a little bit about his background, but I had never performed any of his music. And not to be mixed up with a poet with a very similar name. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Which Google does all the time. Really? Even if you put it incorrectly, yeah. Uh, See, I need to remember which way round the Coleridge and the Taylor goes. Yes. Well, if you think Samuel Coleridge Taylor, he put a hyphen in. Okay. And that helps me. <laughs> and that's the composer. That's the composer. Right. Yes. <laughs> so if you think Coleridge Taylor is one name. Okay. And then Samuel Taylor Coleridge is the poet. The other one. <laughs> See, I, I, think, I would think that maybe because Coleridge comes before Taylor, the C is for composer. That's a really interesting way of doing it. Oh, it's a little insight on how my brain works. <laughs> That's going to confuse me. I'll probably oh, never be no. able to say his name ever again. I'm sorry. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll try and think of it your way, the hyphen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the other one didn't put in a hyphen. No. Yeah. He was a poet. He was like, I'm not going to waste time with He was hyphens. a poet, yeah. <laughs> He's too busy writing. <laughs> so, you based a concert around this non Yes. So, I decided, this is probably about a year before we actually did that concert mm-hmm. for the non So, I decided I wanted to put a concert, base a concert around Samuel Coleridge Taylor's non What else could I program to go with that? Yeah. Uh, maybe some string quartets or some wind quartets or a piano quintet. Very yeah. exciting. Because the non has very rich instrumentation, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. So, it has, it's got oboe, clarinet, bassoon, bassoon horn, horn Piano in the middle. Yeah. Double bass, cello, viola, violin. Exactly. That's nine. I went sort of <laughs> yeah. that way round the semicircle <laughs> from my memory. So from that you can you can have a lot of flexibility exactly. with your instrumentation. Yeah. Um but apparently that was too easy and I decided <laughs> to look at his his because his heritage was so interesting. His dad was a doctor originally from Sierra Leone and his mum was English. Okay. But he was born in Holborn. Yeah. And there's always this talk of because his dad was from Sierra Leone, even though he never met him and didn't really know much about that side of his heritage, he was referred to quite a lot as an African composer. And yeah. so I thought, OK, it'd be interesting to see what other African composers had written for the instruments within the ensemble that maybe we could find a program that would work together. So I had a look at different combinations 
and in the end came up with the Core Anglais and Piano piece by Akin Yuba. Yeah, as mentioned before. Because I didn't have enough work to do, so I thought I might as well play a solo piece in it. It's a solo piece that was very, very complicated. <laughs> it was very complicated. And then there was a Nigerian composer called Godwin Sado, mm-hmm. who I had... We'd been friends for years on Facebook, so we'd never actually met in person. Really? Yeah. I'd seen a few of his books around, because he's written quite a lot on Nigerian composers and ethnomusicologists. So a lot of my research actually has stemmed from things that he's written mm-hmm. um, or at least pointed me in the right direction of where to start looking so yes yeah, so we played a piece by him and I say we you <laughs> you, you programmed for us to play yeah. exactly so that was this quartet so we ended up doing a couple of quartets just because it actually fits the music that was available fit within quite nicely within the program when we had that quite modern feel mm-hmm. To, com- to contrast with the Edwardian, Coleridge, Taylor, huge, yeah. big sound. Yes, it was It was kind of like, like Dvorak and its sort of exactly. energy, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. It was huge. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting in front of the piano. <laughs> and other challenges regarding setting up an ensemble, despite programming, finding available players. Mm-hmm. But I know that you successfully applied for Arts Council funding. Yes. I was wondering if you'd like to share with us the headache that is applying for Arts Council funding. I actually did start embarking down uh, that avenue last year with another project and then I got scared and I ran away. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it would be very interesting for a lot of our listeners who may be thinking about going down that avenue and what to do, what not to do Mm -hmm. regarding applying for funding. Arts Council funding, it's very exciting. It's very exciting. So it's been really interesting I think I've applied three times. Yes, three times. So that project with the ensemble performances was the second time. Mm, okay. The first time I was re- rejected. And that was related, but it was a much bigger proposal. Kind of more around schools, education workshops and things like that. So it would have been a much bigger thing. And longer term, that was rejected. Okay. And right. then the performances with the ensemble, were accepted. Okay, so was there any sort of feedback as to why things get rejected or why things get accepted? Or was it just kind of luck of the draw? I feel like, because I definitely had a lot of people looking through my applications, yes. and so nothing was sent through until they thought, yes, this is definitely great, it's a really good idea, it's, it's clearly laid out. But at the end of the day, it still depends who's on the panel. Sure, and because they go through sort of cycles of reviewing various projects that they exactly. need to consider. So yes. I imagine it sort of depends on who else you're being compared to on the day. Right? That's my understanding of it. Yeah. yeah. So you might have an amazing proposal, but something else goes through and they think that's slightly more amazing than yours. <laughs> but if it had gone through the week before or the week after, it yep. might have been a sure thing to get through. Yeah, exactly. You're surrounded by all these terrible mundane projects and you're like this is the stand-up <laughs> exactly. it's, it's a little bit like doing auditions isn't it it is yeah you, know, you might be playing like your absolute best but mm-hmm. then someone else is just playing a little bit better on the day exactly and then you might have a, a really incredible day you yeah. might be that person exactly on a, at a different in a different situation yeah and the important thing to notice as well with the arts council panels not necessarily with everything else but they are not necessarily musicians so they're oh, not necessarily really? musicians course, who will be yeah. looking at your specific proposal So something that might be really obvious Mm -hmm. to you or to every other musician might not be to them. So they might think it's not a big deal. Right. Whereas to you, it's the most amazing 
spectacular thing in the entire world. Yeah. So I guess you have to be very, very concise in your application with how you explain the importance of your project. Yes. Right. Because I know a lot of the sections, they limit you to only a thousand characters. Exactly. How do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> what do I do? I think I wrote everything in words. So you basically put everything down that you want to do. Yes. That you, so you've got all your ideas there. And then you basically just do a character count in words. And you keep editing it down and down and down. And you really do just need to get other people to read it and see if it still makes sense. Yeah. But the problem is you will have to take things out. So it really is a case of just really guesswork, I suppose, Mm -hmm. trying to work out what is the most important thing. Yeah. Prioritizing. Exactly. That's really, really tricky. It's it's making every single character count. Yeah. But I think that's really a good advice is just to get other people to look at your application because I imagine you can drive yourself crazy looking at the same words over and over again and then you can overlook something that's really, (laughs) really obvious. Oh, like I've used that word five times in a row. Why did I do that? And especially if it's your own project everything will be really obvious to you. You know what that's meant to mean. Mm. But you can show it to somebody else and they'll just say, I have no idea what this is about at all. (laughs) (laughs) So how many people did you have reading through your proposal? So I had two people at the Arts Council read through it. So two relationship managers who were really helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, So that side of it, they they do really want your projects to get through. Okay, so would you say that they're quite approachable? Yes. They're happy to help people who are prospective applicants? Exactly, yes. If you've been through once before and they can see actually your project does have legs, they will be really helpful. Mm -hmm. I had a couple of other people who had had their own projects go through successfully as well. Ah, That's really useful. I also had... One of my brothers, who has never done any of these things before, just as a complete outsider, All right, yeah. read it and check and make sure that it actually made sense. <laughs> That's good. Is, is he a musician? He's not a musician right, at all. No. Yeah. So my siblings aren't musicians either. So it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's refreshing to get that viewpoint. It is, yeah. So, yeah, that was really helpful from an editing point of view, just looking at it, do those words make sense in that order? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Have I got a verb in this sentence? <laughs> Oh, wow. And then yeah. it got through. Yeah. And and I was I was really shocked, actually, because I was just expecting, because so many people put things through all the time yeah. and don't get anything. And then you hear about all these mythical groups that get funding all the time. <laughs> mythical groups. <laughs> yeah, so it was really, I was really shocked. Just like, oh, wow. So but we're actually doing this now. <laughs> like, so happy, right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, ecstatic. And then I realised how much work we all had to do. Oh, yeah. Now, this is just the beginning. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> how long did it take between you applying and, and finding out? Um, so they, I think they say up to six weeks and it was something like five and a half weeks. Oh, so. <laughs> right down to the wire. <laughs> exactly. So you're right on, on tenterhooks, right? Definitely. Almost yes, until the end. thinking, okay, okay, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Yeah. And then it was. Yeah. Every time you get an email on your phone, you just think, yeah. oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's the news. <laughs> it was a really great experience, but... The other thing to know is that once something goes through, it doesn't mean it's going to go through again. I'm now so is this for, for, for future, yeah, for future projects. So I'm now about to start another application oh, fun. <laughs> in because, the summer. Because, you know, you just didn't enjoy it enough the first exactly. time. Exactly. <laughs> I feel like I just want to keep doing this forever. During the summer. <laughs> you know, I don't want to go outside. <laughs> exactly. Who needs the sunlight? Yeah. I'll just lie on my back under the fan yeah. and apply for Arts Council funding. Exactly. <laughs> 
So what will that funding be going towards? So it'll be going towards a few more projects, actually, and hopefully going into some schools as well. So we've identified some schools of possible partnerships in East London, Mm -hmm. which is very exciting. But yeah, it's just a case of getting the funding for it. So is it like you're coming full circle because was that your original idea you had for the first round of funding? Yes. Yeah. And then now that you've got the initial funding, you can go back to what you wanted to do. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes you do have to break it down into smaller, I suppose, more easy to understand parts. Mm -hmm. Because it might have been that because there were the performances as part of this resource pack that I wanted to put together, it might have been a bit difficult to understand. So now we've done the performances, they can see, oh, yes, this is this ensemble can actually play this music and it does exist. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes it can be hard to um, make a proposal for something if you can't show it exists. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes you do have to just go a little bit slower Mm -hmm. than you wanted to in the first place. Oh, yeah. Go at your own pace. Yeah. I'm always really impatient, so I try to do everything all at once. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think sometimes I can be the same. I I do have to remind myself, like, to be just one thing at a time. Yeah. But you can't help it sometimes. Sometimes everything just comes at once. (laughs) And so what is next for the ensemble? So next for the ensemble, we have two concerts coming up at the end of the summer. One is on the 27th of August at St. Stephen Walbrook, which is near Bank. Okay. And the next one after that is on Thursday, the 19th of September at the October Gallery. So both of those are part of a concert series that the pianist Rebecca Omordia has put together. Oh, okay. Um, she's looking at, specifically at African art music. Mm-hmm. So obviously that fits in quite a lot with the repertoire that the ensemble's playing at the moment. Ah. So yeah, so we've got the quartet of playing in the August concert and then the September one will be music for oboe, flute and piano. Oh, wow. So are you happy now that you've uncovered some more repertoire? I am. <laughs> you've given yourself something to do. Exactly. <laughs> So what's your what's your favourite chamber work that you've played, that you've oh, uncovered? I think it actually is the Coleridge Taylor Nonette. Yeah, what, what did you find yeah. enjoyable about that? I I actually quite liked the the sound of the whole ensemble together and having the piano instead of the flute. Oh yeah, thought, no flute. Yeah, <laughs> no flute. <laughs> what does that say about the flute? <laughs> so it meant it could kind of fill in those harmonies, mm-hmm. but also fill out the really high octaves as well although the violin part was very high (laughs) that's right yes as the violinist will attest yes (laughs) there was a lot of doubling going on like tripling yeah quadrupling yeah (laughs) I remember you know you'd be playing one thing and you could guarantee there'd be at least two other people playing the same thing as you (laughs) so I think it was quite challenging in terms of balance yeah especially when we did Southwark Cathedral (laughs) that was a challenge for our first one Mm -hmm. in that series yeah because it was such a boomy acoustic. I don't think I've ever played in a cathedral where I thought, I'm completely comfortable. Really. No, no. But, but usually with chamber music, you would have a smaller group and you'd be closer together. Yes, you would. And because we were such a large group, obviously we had to be further apart. Mm. And I think we realised pretty quickly that we had to just watch each other. Yeah. Because what you could hear was probably a couple of seconds ago. <laughs> yes. I actually had this problem last night. <laughs> yeah, in the concert performing in Bridgewater Hall and actually a completely oh. different context. We weren't in a cathedral mm. and we weren't playing chamber music. It was all electronics. I had my in-ears, so I was playing to a click track. Mm-hmm. And basically I, I could hear the sound in the house conflicting with the click. Oh. 
and that was really difficult. So you have to half switch off. Yeah. Don't listen to what the audience is listening to. Just stick with the click. <laughs> and it's, it's really hard sometimes. It is. Yeah. But sometimes it's, it's strange as a musician that sometimes you do have to almost switch your ears off mm. in order to just keep it in time. Yeah. Because you learn so much when you're a kid, when you're, when you're learning to become a musician. It's all about listening. Yeah. Listen to yourself, listen to others. And then you're just being told not to do that anymore. <laughs> and you think, come on, what was, what was all that practice for? <laughs> I mentioned to you that there would be some surprise questions. Yes, you did. Mm, tentative. <laughs> I'm a bit worried about these. One always is, <laughs> but it's fine. So this is the wild card question round where you have the opportunity to choose what I ask you next. Oh. Oh. So there are three choices and you get to choose one. Okay. To answer. You have the choice of secret talents, memorable gigs, or what's your poison? Um... <laughs> I'm laughing a little bit because I wrote these on the train. And so I'm just thinking, what was I thinking? But I do, I do recall now what I was thinking. So basically, it's just the general topic. Okay. Something I will ask you. Because I was trying to tell from the look on your face which one I should pick. Oh, gosh. Don't look at my face. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to help at all. <laughs> Let's go for memorable gig. Okay, cool. So memorable gigs. Tell me either a gig that you've played in or watched that was memorable for good reasons. And then also a memorable gig that either you played in or watched that was memorable for bad reasons. Okay. So a memorable gig that I watched that was amazing was Stevie Wonder in Hyde Park oh. a few years ago. It was about three years ago, four years ago. Uh, British summertime, so he's been back since. Yeah. The reason that was so memorable was because I actually thought I couldn't go. I thought I wasn't going. I couldn't find tickets anywhere. Yeah. And I was actually free and couldn't get tickets for it <laughs> and posted on Facebook about how sad I was that I wasn't going. Mm -hmm. And then a very lovely friend of mine said that she had seen a post in her local area Facebook page that somebody had a ticket and couldn't go. And did anyone want it? Oh. And so at I think it was 730 on a Sunday morning, I jumped on the tube, <laughs> went up to Walthamstow <laughs> and got this ticket. Wow to go and see Stevie Wonder and it was the best day ever and then obviously there were lots of people I knew in the parks everyone's like walking around having the best time ever yeah it was such a lovely day and I got to see Stevie Wonder for the first time that's incredible yeah that's the kind of situation which makes you think the universe is going my way exactly yeah oh, that's really really nice something similar happened to me a few years ago where Yo-Yo Ma was playing the complete Bach cello suites at mm. the BBC proms yeah I think this was four years ago and with massive things like that, sometimes I don't even try to get a ticket because <laughs> exactly. I just think, like, they're just going to get sold out in, like, 10 seconds. So I was like, oh, whatever. Uh, maybe I'll think about queuing on the day, but I'm not good at queuing for proms. It's, it's, I find it unpleasant. Mm -hmm. But then, yeah, someone on Facebook was selling a ticket, and it was, like, even in a seat. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, very fancy. I know. <laughs> sitting down at the proms, not just, like, having a picnic up in the gallery or standing yeah so they they had a seat and, and said yeah it's yours basically and that got, is awesome it was brilliant it, it, the atmosphere was absolutely electric I think by the time he got to uh, the end of the fifth suite and everyone knew he still had the last like 
ridiculously crazily hard sixth sweet to go. Yeah. The atmosphere was almost like a sports game or something. <laughs> Everyone was just cheering him on. They knew what was coming up. They knew just one more sweet, one more sweet, the ridiculously hard one. And he came back on stage and he was fist pumping. He was like, yeah, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. <laughs> and then he just sat down and played crazy, crazy music. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. I, I love those concerts. <laughs> they just, they stay with you, don't they? They really do, yeah. Yeah. So can you share with us a gig that either you've watched or had played in that was memorable for the wrong reasons okay so (laughs) there was a gig which will always be referred to as sweatbox Beethoven (laughs) 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 oh no this does not sound promising and it was I think it was a Beethoven 9 as well but it was on what up until then was the hottest day of the of ever basically <laughs> hottest day of ever it was the hottest day ever really? at that point okay so it was this was before last thursday it was it? <laughs> it was <laughs> in a it's one of those old theaters which doesn't really have aircon so the way you do the aircon is just by opening the doors at the front and the back Okay. But it's Beethoven 9, so a huge orchestra yeah. and a huge choir, yes. all crammed into quite a small space. We started rehearsing. Everyone's a little bit warm. <laughs> Got to the last movement, and we were basically all in a stage where no one could really see because everyone was sweating so much. <laughs> There's bleak. <laughs> it was quite horrible. Fingers sliding off keys. It was quite warm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that was the least fun Beethoven gig I've ever done. Oh no, and that's such a shame because you want to feel so uplifted by that final. Movement. Exactly. Yeah. Everyone's just like going for it, exactly. but you're like, I don't want to. <laughs> I mean, to be fair to us, we did all still go for it. Okay. And but luckily, most of us had played it before, so we, even if we couldn't see, we knew it was happening. <laughs> oh, that's very good. That's, that's a testament to your skill as a musician. I don't think I would be able to do that. I've never actually played Beethoven nine. Ah, it's mm. amazing. Yeah, I've, li- I've listened to it like loads of times, but. I've, I've never played it. The only Beethoven symphonies I've not played mm-hmm. to date, so this is speaking as of August 2019, are number two and nine. Oh. I've played all the others. I have a feeling I haven't performed four, mm-hmm. but I have done all the rest. Oh, yeah. even two. Even two. Yeah. Yeah. Two, I don't, I don't really recall. Don't ask it's, me to sing it. No, yeah, I couldn't <laughs> sing it. It's not extremely memorable. So it's luckily you weren't playing Beethoven 2 during Sweatbox. <laughs> it's very lucky. <laughs> so everything just would have fallen apart. But I really like 4, actually, surprisingly. I think 4 is a bit of the underdog. 4 is one of those ones I have performed bits of, but never the whole lot. Mm. Yes, it's an excerpt. Oh, is it a Nobo excerpt? Yeah. yeah, no, we have our, th- we we definitely have our things, like f- cello excerpts, beginning of the second movement of Beethoven 5. That's our Oh, name. yeah. Yeah. You look at it and you think, that's fine, mm-hmm. but it's not. <laughs> yeah. The more that you practice it, the more you look at it, you just think, oh, there's so many right. issues here. Yeah. Yeah. The Beethoven 1, I remember from college, because we all had to learn it for conducting classes. So that was one that everybody did. And then you kind of learn all the parts because you only ever have about six people there. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I was playing viola at one point on the oboe. How did that go? My alto clef reading is not amazing. Is anyone's? 
<laughs> Can you even read? Oh, sorry. Okay. Um, I mean, I had to do it for grade five theory. Oh, oh well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we all did grade five theory. I, so, someone, yes, but, I can read it, but mm-hmm. playing it mm. is very, very different. Because don't you just slide into some other cliff? Well, that's what would happen. That's, I didn't end up just going into treble. Yeah. Because, yeah, my mind just switches to treble, even if I'm playing bass clef on the piano. <laughs> I just go to treble. This is the problem that cellists have, actually. As a cellist, you have a specific clef for mm-hmm. very specific registers of your instrument yeah so bottom bass cliff a bit on the a string tenor cliff and then like high stuff treble cliff and you really associate those registers with those cliffs yeah so when you get the odd person who says something like oh just put it down the octave like no i can't do that (laughs) (laughs) and actually it is really annoying because there are some composers like schumann dvorak they write in treble cliff but meaning for it to be played an octave lower than written. Right. It's very confusing. So you, you see the panic in cellist's eyes. Yeah. Like, oh, my God. How am I going to play all that? It didn't sound like that in the recording. And then it's like, no, no, no. Don't worry. It's down the octave. It's like, why don't you write that in Tenecliffe then? That's not fun. No. That, that's a bit like asking Noboist to transpose. You don't have to do that ever, do you? Not usually, but it has happened. Right. When a part might be supplied in the wrong key, for instance. <laughs> Why would that even So happen? sometimes there might be an orchestral piece that is written in different keys, like a concerto. Okay. Where yeah. there are different versions in different keys. Mm-hmm. And the soloist might learn one version, <laughs> but the orchestra have hired a different one. <laughs> I just did a massive eye roll. <laughs> yeah. And that's actually happened to me on more than one occasion. Yeah. But we didn't, luckily we didn't ever have to perform with okay. the wrong parts. There were like Good. emergency people going out to find the right ones. Yeah. But it... It has happened at least two times, maybe three. That's a bit worrying. I feel like that's something that clarinet players get used to. Yeah, they clarinets, always... they transpose. <laughs> that's their job. So because clarinetists can do it, everyone thinks an oboist can. Mm, no, but you guys are sensible and you're in C. Yeah. Yeah. C is the key we're meant to be in. C is the key. <laughs> that's the title of this episode. <laughs> That's brilliant. I really enjoy hearing insights on big staples of symphonic repertoire from different instruments. So thank you for that. (laughs) Where can people follow you, your research and the ensemble? Okay, so the ensemble is decusensemble.com is our website. Okay, so that's D-E-C-U-S. Yes, it is. Um, And we're also on Twitter and Facebook because everyone is these days. I'm not on Twitter. I I don't. Are you not on Twitter? No, I don't really get it. It took me a while and now I prefer Twitter to Facebook. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I do Facebook. Mm-hmm. I do Instagram. Not very good at Instagram. <laughs> also don't really quite get that either, but that's fine. Instagram's just like looking at people's photos. Yeah, pictures, but that's yeah. kind of nice. It is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the reasoning behind the name Decus? So, Decus... It's Latin, mm-hmm. meaning kind of a decoration. Okay. So like the decoration that you get around a medal or a coin. Oh, okay. That, especially like a pound coin, yes. where you have like the weird, frilly, mm-hmm. embroidery type looking decoration. Yeah. So it's kind of a description of that, but also because it was sort of 10-ish in the ensemble. Oh, right. 10-ish. <laughs> 10 minus one. Exactly. <laughs> and it sounds nice. It's good. Yeah. Decus ensemble. Yeah. So... Where can people follow your research? So my research is Plain Sight Sound. So it's Plain, P-L-A-I-N, 
sight, S-I-G-H-T, and sounds. Plainsightsounds.com. I didn't realise until I was spelling it for someone the other day that plain and sight can be spelled in very many different ways. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'm just thinking of that now as in, like, aeroplane and building sight. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a different company, isn't it? Exactly. Okay, plainsightsound. Plainsightsound.com and also on Twitter and Facebook. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. So follow that to keep up to date mm-hmm. with what you've been up to. Exactly. And also through Plain Sight Sound, if you have any information that you might want to send me, that'd be awesome. Actually, yesterday I had an email from somebody, a very nice lady called Emma in Australia, who was researching Bridge Tower. Uh-huh. So George Bridge Tower is a famous violinist. And I knew that he had a brother called Frederick. And everything I'd looked in said that we don't know what happened to his brother. He just disappeared. Mm. But she'd been doing some research of her own, some family research. And somehow, I think she might be distantly related. But she had tracked Frederick down to Dublin and sent me some scans of his music that he'd written. (gasps) Oh, brilliant. Yeah. So everything I'd read didn't mention any music that he had had published. And there were two pieces that she'd found. So hopefully might be able to incorporate some of those. Oh, that's brilliant. So yeah, so... Send stuff to me. Thanks, Emma <laughs> from Australia. <laughs> yeah, send stuff on and yeah. then it can be part of the exactly. database. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's been fun. <laughs> cool. <laughs> that was the wonderful Uchenna Ngwe. Make sure to check the show notes for links to her work. Thank you to the people who have told me what music college didn't prepare them for. I will applaud certain submissions for their brevity, such as being broke or life. However, in the interests of being a little more specific, I will recall a discussion I had with a recent desk partner, Miriam, while we were on a pop gig. We were mic'd and playing with in-ear monitors, so theoretically, you should be able to hear the sound of yourself the other players, the band. If you don't have them, it's all just very loud, so you have no chance. Sometimes, though, the sound is just really difficult. You can't hear yourself properly because you might be getting too much of someone else in the mix or sometimes your pack just runs out of battery so you can't hear anything at all. I mentioned this a little in my conversation with Uchenna, but you spend your entire musical training learning to listen to yourself, learning to listen to others, and then all of a sudden you're having to rely only on muscle memory. And just like that, you have to switch off everything you've learnt before. As string players, we learn how to play acoustically at music college, working on how to produce the best sound with the tools you have, that is, your bow and string. You work on projection, clarity, different colours. So it's understandable that working with mics and amplification can seem foreign if you haven't used them much. It's not like there's a class where you can sit down with all the tech and play around with it all, and there's definitely no performance class where you have to play without hearing anything. Suddenly, you're in the profession, and you've got to learn on the job. Like many things. If you have an experience that Music College didn't prepare you for, then tell me, preferably in more than one word. Email me at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com, or just find me and tell me. I'm not that difficult to find, and you'll probably run into me at some point. That's it for today. Special thanks to Ros Nagy for my logo and Daniel Elms for my jingle. Huge thanks to Uchenna Ngwe for being so interesting and hilarious to chat to and for putting up with me while I was tired and a bit out of it. 
to be honest, when am I not? And finally, thank you for listening. Whether you're on a lengthy commute, cooking, doing the gardening, or working around the house, I hope I've made your day a little more memorable. I've loved hearing what you think, so get in touch at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com. Like and follow the pod on Facebook and Instagram at asitcomespod. Remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word. I'll chat to you soon. Bye. Thank you.